This is Truth Jihad Radio, where we're still allowed to talk about censorship. Help us keep getting away with it. Go to truthjihad.com and hit the subscribe at Substack button. Welcome back. This is the second hour of tonight's Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, going live from a, uh, an old ice cream trailer. I think I already said this in the first hour as I was listening to answering machine messages. And here we are in the second hour of tonight's show getting more answering machine messages. It does seem that people are setting their phones to not receive calls from Skype, which is messing up our connectivity here at Revolution.Radio. Let's see. I do have another possible phone number for the second hour guest tonight, A.K. Dudney. He is a retired professor of mathematics, computer science. I think he taught some ecology and who knows what else. He's a major figure in the 9-11 truth movement who proved that cell phone calls could not have been made from altitude in 2001, the way we were told that they did. And uh, he's a a really interesting guy from a lot of different uh, angles. He's, uh, he's a Muslim. He uh, probably has been more Whoa. on the Sufi wavelength. And I think we actually somehow got him. So, hey, welcome. <laughs> Key Dudney, how are you? Uh, I'm good, Kevin. I'm uh, just wondering what's, uh, <clears throat> wondering what's going on. Is there any visual parts? This is all talk, right? Yeah, it's just talk. So we don't need any cameras. We don't need to comb our hair or put on our clothes or anything like that. Um, well, that's great because I've been told I'm all talk anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, I get told that once in a while too, I guess. Although sometimes my guests are more all talk than I am. Oh my, <laughs> Mona last week was definitely more all talk than I was. But anyway, so we we were going to be talking about the issue of well, is the um, truth movement all talk? That is, is the truth movement actually accomplishing anything, or are we just sitting here yapping and flapping our gums? And getting nowhere, like Alan Sobrowski suggested. Alan Sobrowski wrote that article about how the truth movement failed. And he uh, came on my radio show not long ago to talk about that and to basically retire from talk radio. Although now I've spoken to him or or communicated recently, and he will come out of retirement. He's going to explain himself next week on this very show. But anyway, his his article was very pessimistic, and he was arguing that we just totally screwed up from a sort of a, a strategic viewpoint. You know, thinking as a military strategist, we lost the war, says Alan. And then there are other people who say that, you know, every two days, oh, it's a new game changer. The deep state is panicking. Uh, the VAX plan is failing and on and on and on. And and those seem even less convincing to me <laughs> than what Zabrowski said. So where do we where do we start in trying to figure out to what extent that the truth movement is actually uh, doing something useful? It's a good question. Um are we, in other words, are we just preaching to the choir or are we getting new people into the choir? Uh, what's happening with those masking, anti-masking or anti-lockdown demonstrations going on apparently in large numbers in Europe and in the Americas? Um, <clears throat> for example, how do you get 10,000 people out on the street? Now, this is a little bit off to one side, the question I'm asking now, but... I have tried to join some of these demonstrations, but I can't seem to get into Control Central for some reason. I've tried three times now. I'm just wondering who's in charge of these uh, 
huge demonstration. Well, well, wait a minute. What, what happened when you tried to get into the demonstration? How you Did you lose your way, or did the demonstration leave without you, or what happened? No, I left messages, but they were never returned. I sent money, uh, donations. Uh, they were, in two cases, they weren't acknowledged even. <laughs> um, I just sort of felt like a fifth wheel or, or I, you know, come from another planet or something. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, um, that raises another question, to what extent a lot of these things that are going on are actually orchestrated. So even demonstrations... I once aired this with a friend of mine in the intelligence community. I said, you know, what if some of the websites that we, we all think are so great are actually run by them, the opposition? And uh, he didn't like that suggestion very much. But um, I said, well, that could be happening because, remember, the deep state is always behind both sides. So or get into that position which makes life very difficult for us because a strategy is tough when the opposition immediately adopts it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Is it strategic or is it tactical? Um, I have a plan for, um, for the uh, last few days of our free existence, or relatively free existence, to turn the tide, but it's not quite time for that yet. But apart from that, um, I don't know what we can do. We don't know where we're... First of all, find out where we are, right? Let's take this methodically. You asked the question, where are we now? We need somebody who knows how to do polls or even hire a pollster. Listen, I would, I would pay to or help make a nice contribution towards someone hiring a pollster to find out over time, over a two-month period, for example, whether there's any shift in opinion and, and uh, public opinion. Um, and and if so, we could take some heart from what would appear to be momentum. But if we're basically polling the same numbers month after month, um, you know, I would have to sort of wonder if Sobrowski is, you know, making the right decision. That's a, that's a technical military decision. There's also the moral decision. You know, I'll fight to the end. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, from, from, from a Muslim viewpoint, we're really supposed to be doing the right thing and, you know, waging the, uh, the struggle for good, uh, whether or not we're going to win in, in this life. And sometimes you win in this life, as the Prophet, peace upon him, and his companions did when they succeeded in defending themselves in Medina and then nearly bloodlessly capturing Mecca. And then other times you don't succeed in this life as happened to the prophet's grandson Hussein at Karbala, but he did yeah. the right thing. And, and either way, you know, you do the right thing and you end up in paradise. And so I think we just have to keep doing the right thing and not be too attached to results. But we still, of course, we are by doing the right thing. That also means trying to do it, do it well and try to get good results. We make an honest effort. And that's yeah. a, that's the question. Are, are we making that honest effort? How could we do better? Be effective, uh, you know, in the process. Uh, exactly. Um, it's interesting that if you think about it, I think we talked about this once before, the three levels of jihad or, uh, you know, struggle against oppression. Uh, the first level was military jihad, where someone invades your city intending to kill everyone, and you have to kill them instead. That's military jihad. And then there's uh, the jihad that the prophet spoke about coming back from the Battle of Badr 
And he said, we leave the lesser jihad for the greater one. And they said, oh, what is that, O Prophet of Allah? And he said, um, the struggle against the self. You see, that's, that's the greater jihad. And then we've got the uh, commentator, Sunnah, saying, the greatest jihad is to fling a word of truth in the face of the oppressor. And what have we been doing all these years but flinging word after word of truth, presumably in the face of the oppressor? The oppressor or his minions, some of them must be reading these, um, you know, intense posts that we've been putting up. Um, so that and, is, and they get upset. They they freeze my YouTube channel periodically. <laughs> they put out ADL fatwas against me. Actually, that's a good sign. There are some predictive statistics or st- predictive moves that we will see them make that help us to make some assessment of where we're going. Um, you know, certain sites that do seem to be being effective, you know, get shut down on the social media or whatever. Uh, that happens. And there are other signs that can be read. For example, in the summer, late summer of 2020, um, uh, I received a, um, a post. I think we talked about this too once. So the, um, a member of parliament in the Canadian parliament was, uh, was appointed to a committee called the Planning Committee. I call it the Central Planning Committee, uh, attached to the PMO's office. And um, they had, they were told by certain members of that committee who didn't seem to be elected officials, but were sort of, I don't know, um, consultants, experts, whatever, um, puppet masters, I don't know. But they said that in no uncertain terms, the following uh, schedule, which they laid out in that document, would be followed. First of all, there'd be several waves over the coming winter of COVID. And then in the spring, we would see the announcement of a forgiveness of debt, followed by a universal income, followed by a surrender of all personal property. And they gave quarters of the year, Q2, Q3, Q4 of 2021, when these would happen, and none of them have happened. So either that document was phony. Of course it was. Huh? <laughs> of course it was phony. That that's that that one was you know, that was like as phony as a proverbial three dollar bill from the get go, wasn't it? Okay, well okay, but who who was that that leaves open the question of who was behind it and what kind of schedule was that? Anyway, the schedule worked roughly until the spring and then it fell apart. You know, they didn't none of these things that sounded so terrible actually happened, although they were echoed in a faint way in January of twenty twenty one with the announcement of Davos of the Great Reset, which went almost nowhere on the regular print and broadcast media, but which um, uh, was noted by virtually all of us. And, and, you know, there were several articles that went out at that time uh, saying, well, here it comes, you know, this is the Great Reset. But they did use that term, and uh, much the same kind of uh, operation was, was, uh, was indicated. So... Um, that leaves me sort of in the middle there. Um, mm-hmm. I did talk to someone else who was supposed to be knowledgeable, and he thought that perhaps uh, they actually had fallen behind. And uh, others are saying, well, this is why they're getting increasingly desperate. They're speeding up the schedule because because you can't keep the COVID farce thing going forever. You've got to make your next move soon and, and uh, sort of cement in uh, those parts of the operation that are going to keep us permanently uh, under control. 
uh, in which things like 5G play a role. The thing is, this operation has so many facets, so many um, directions, uh, and so many sub-parts that uh, it's really kind of hard to keep the whole thing in your mind at once. Um, and, and so there are several problems here. So the first problem is assessment, knowing where we are and are we making progress and what kind of progress are we making. And secondly, developing some kind of way, consistent manner of reading the signs that we seem to, get, to be getting from the deep state. And the third is to develop effective strategies. But more than that, I thought there must sooner or later be some kind of central clearinghouse or center, center of control or cons consultation, which we can all somehow adhere to or cooperate with, um, which, um, of course, leaves us open to infiltration. But the great advantage of Islam, of course, is it's very tricky. That you cannot infiltrate Islam. There is no central control, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. There are a few scholars who claim to speak for Islam, but... Yeah, but that, that, that's actually kind of a double-edged sword, though, because um, it's on the one hand, you can't really infiltrate Islam because it's so decentralized. But on the other hand, it's very easy to infiltrate Islam or various aspects of the Islamic world precisely because it's so decentralized that there's there's no real policing. Like with Al-Qaeda, anybody could say that they started an Al-Qaeda chapter and Israel got caught starting Al-Qaeda chapters in Palestine. And with uh, ISIS or Daesh, it's even worse. Anybody can get jump in their car like that idiot in Waukesha, run people down. And if, if, if they say they're ISIS, the media will say, hey, ISIS just ran people down. Uh, yeah. And there's there's no committee at ISIS that says, you know, I'm I, you know, these people are real ISIS and those people are fake ISIS. Same thing with Al-Qaeda and really the same thing with Islam as a whole. So people can say, hey, you know, I'm a Muslim, but... And, you know, you can have these like kind of extreme leftist woke people like my guest last week, Mona, uh, who identify as Muslim. And then you can also have Wahhabis uh, who are behaving abysmally and quite un-Islamically, and they can call themselves Muslim. And we don't really have a, a good clear uh, furkan or kind of clear division uh, that allows no. us to put yeah, you know, I and then if you do try to, to pronounce takfir on somebody, say that's not a Muslim, that's a pretty radical step. And it's actually these really bad guys who are mostly doing that. So we're kind of stuck. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, apart from Islam, which is, is not the central issue at the moment, it's really a question of whether you can have somebody who can take some kind of initiative that the great majority of people on our side of the curtain can agree with and follow and then once you get coordination going on, you can do a lot more instead of having a, you know, a hundred or a thousand different voices, you know, calling out in the dark. Uh, you can have something that is far more effective, which can get the ear of the media, which can, you know, get the ear of the people. I've thought of things like, um, you know, if you can put together a little fund, which I'm sure we could, um, you could, why not... Um, hire a, a, a flyer distribution company and put up the flyers that warn people about masking and uh, the ineffectiveness of the, the dangers of the vaccine or whatever you want to say. Well, that, and, that is happening, of course, in, in various places. Was, I was just talking with somebody in Europe who was talking about all of these flyers uh, of that kind all over the place. 
Well, maybe that accounts for the large demonstrations. Um, I am not aware of any campaigns taken here, but one of the hopes that I had getting out of this uh, to get out of this uh, discussion was to find out from you what you know about such initiatives having been taken. Um, you said there was something going on in Europe in the way it flies, but uh, what about this side of the water? Well, my friend Kat McGuire, who's also a regular co-host at False Flag Weekly News, has been yeah. doing a whole lot of COVID-oriented organizing out of New York City for the most part. And then she's with the uh, Worldwide Demonstration uh, website. I think I think it's WorldwideDemonstration.com, if I'm not mistaken. And so yeah. Kat has had pretty good luck in New York. Uh, creating well, these good-sized events that got some coverage, including mainstream coverage. And I think the, the the little bit of that sort of thing that's been happening has been, I think, having an effect. I get a sense that the, the establishment doesn't really believe their own poll numbers. You know, they, they say, oh, according to our polls, you know, we only have like 15 percent of really hardcore anti-vaxxers. But we still can't get more than a little over 50 percent of the people vaccinated, fully vaccinated. So what's going on here? Uh, it's all and, our fault. I yeah, have a it, must be, it must be cat's fault. <laughs> well, I have yeah. a brother on the other side of the curtain, at least uh, in opinion, and uh, he says it's people like me who who make who make COVID continue to spread. You know? yeah. Well, that's because, what Mona, the guest last week, uh, was saying in in very obscene terms. Um, she she spent the whole hour pretty much yelling at me. Uh, <laughs> oh dear, yes. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, uh, that's the kind of training you need to become a really effective radio host, I guess, uh, you know, to keep your cool uh, in the face of fire. But, um, you know, we get blamed for it. At the same time, you think about a large demonstration. Let's say that this uh, leaflet campaign or uh, um, flyer campaign was in part responsible for that rather massive turnout the crowds look immense, you know. I mean, when I when they say ten thousand, I believe it. Um, it could be, you see, that the people who want to go to those rallies are not necessarily working on our side of the curtain. May not even be aware of a lot of the issues that you and I have been facing from the get go. But in the presence of that crowd, they are almost certain to meet a number of people who say, "Oh, don't you know about this? Don't you know about that?" They say, oh, oh, you know, some of them are bound to change their thinking. Uh, so the demonstrations themselves could be act as, you know, rather enormous uh, recruiting centers. I mean, I'm just throwing that out as a possibility. I only thought no, it, it's I, happening. Yeah, I've had people on the show who've done this. Like another uh, friend who's organizing a bit is uh, my my old campaign manager, Rolf Lindgren. Who, who managed my campaign for Congress back in 2008. And now he's become a Trump Republican. And so we okay. sometimes we, we yell at each other on my radio show every now and then. But he has been doing pretty good work organizing Republican events. He gets people together I, every week or two, every couple of weeks, he has a meetup. And they typically yeah. get uh, close to 100 people. And, and so this is the Republican Party. But uh, Rolf gives away uh, 9-11 truth books and other so-called conspiracy books at yes. these meetups. And some of the people at the meetups know about this stuff. I actually went yeah. to one of the, I, I was a guest speaker at one of these meetups. I think it was like last spring. And uh, I was shocked that virtually all of the local candidates for office who spoke there 
were hip to 9-11 and basically everything else I, I said during my five-minute fiery, insane speech that I thought would get these Republicans throwing rotten fruit at me. And instead, all except one totally agreed with me, and the one hadn't really heard these things before but was interested. And he, So these were the Republican candidates for local office around Madison, Wisconsin. So I think, I think Rolf is actually getting something done by creating these meetups. And, and I think these Trump Republicans who tend to be kind of new to all of these populist uh, approaches to things, they're often very unsophisticated and some of them fall for, you know, extreme QAnon stuff and other crazy stuff. But uh, I think that's where the needle is moving. I think that, you know, more and more people who are waking up to these things are actually coming at it from that side of the political spectrum. And I think there's a, you know, there are pluses and minuses to that, but Hey, you know, anybody who's waking up a little bit, I guess is good. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's just um, we're making creeping progress. How do we know that perhaps the deep state or the shadow government or the latest thing, the the elite rulers is another um, phrase I've learned recently to mean pretty much the same thing. How do we know that, um, for example, as one claim would have it, um, uh, they're accelerating the program. They're speeding up because they're afraid that the uh, COVID uh, operation is starting to fall apart, that maybe they're more concerned about all these huge demonstrations uh, than we might think, or maybe uh, the numbers of people who are unvaccinated are uh, rather larger than the figures that we hear from the print and broadcast media. Uh, I don't know, but uh, I know one thing, that is... The modest efforts I have made to organize things locally require a lot of work and a lot of time. It really takes away from my, you know, 21 major projects that I'm involved in uh, to to do that sort of work. So I was just also looking at uh, cheap ways of getting the word out. Uh, Anyway, so we can refocus for a minute. Um, We were talking about... uh, how we know how to how to find out what's really going on with with the uh, deep state, uh, and secondly, how to effectively oppose it. Um, another th- problem I have is that there are sometimes variations that are rather deep within our movement, uh, going right back to 9/11. I mean, there's still people who think that the Pentagon was hit by uh, an actual uh, you know passenger aircraft. And, you know, pushing that view. So um, that I'm I'm actually I'm I'm kind of agnostic on that at this point, just because I haven't yet heard a good refutation of the kind of forensic argument coming from David Chandler and Wayne Costi and those people at uh, Scientists for 9-11 Truth. Oh, yeah. Well, speaking of them, you know, I mean, I was attacked by them uh, personally, not publicly, but in a a series of emails where I was accused of saying that the uh, that the aircraft uh, hit the second story, whereas if you take the cross section of the aircraft in question, drawn accurately into scale by an architect's draftsman, you superimpose again to exactly the same scale against the facade of the Pentagon, with the belly of the plane just one inch above the grass. Uh, you end up with the top third of the aircraft intersecting the second story. And so um, 
he, what he did with that, what Costa did with that, was to say, oh, well, they're claiming they hit the second story, which is obviously crazy, because if you look at the damage, the second story, you know, wasn't affected the same way the first was, you know, the initial holes. And the other, they started calling me a no-planer. <laughs> mm-hmm. so I said that the plane that hit wasn't a passenger aircraft, and I had to explain, no, no, we're, we're, we have now some pretty good analyses of the ACE of the, uh, we did find the engine or a breather of the ACE, uh, A7 uh, Navy attack aircraft uh, on site, and uh, they wouldn't have salted that if it wasn't uh, actually a real piece of debris. Anyway, um, and the photographs of the Pentagon parking lot, you know, do show a, an aircraft very fuzzy but with a tail, remarkably like an A7. I mean, I'm going with that, and other people say no, it was hit by a. Uh, I mean, there is a difference of opinion here, and I agree, and it's, it's to some degree legitimate. But mm-hmm. I, it, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter all that much in that the you know the elephant in the room is that these guys, these 19 guys that they blamed for it, uh, could not possibly have done this on their own, led by you know, Osama in the cave in Afghanistan. And, it, and specifically, the Pentagon flight uh, it was just completely ridiculous. The claim that it disappeared from the radar over Ohio, and uh, mm-hmm. no radar, military civilian, actually could follow it because they turned off the transponder, which is ludicrous. Uh, it just yeah. completely disappeared. And then it miraculously appeared just a few minutes uh, above the Pentagon, and it did this 9,000-foot corkscrew dive, pulling uh, heavy G-forces to come in, clipping the grass at ground level, you know, nicking uh, the wire uh, and the tree and and clipping the grass to put a hole in the exact opposite side of the Pentagon where any real attacker would want to hit. Uh, and that this was all done, this amazing stunt flying, this corkscrew dive that can't be replicated on simulators that no pilots can do, was somehow pulled off by Hani oh. Hendra, who was not allowed to fly a Cessna. He w- they wouldn't let him solo in a Cessna training aircraft. And this this oh. whole thing is, is the whole story is, is insane and ridiculous. Whether yeah. it doesn't matter really what hit the Pentagon, we know that Hani Hendra and his friends didn't fly that plane into the Pentagon. Yeah, no, I mean, that is the key element. And I suppose that one thing we do have to sometimes do is not get too wrapped up in these controversies and, you know, back up one step and say, well, we know this much. And that's pretty clear. So case closed, you know. And I think your approach there is probably the most sensible one. In any case, um, diversity of opinion up to some point might be allowable, but I think it only weakens um, the movement as a whole and um, tends to maybe subtract somewhat from our credibility. Uh, But that's not the central problem here. The central problem is that there are a lot of people now, I estimate between 10,000 and 20,000 professional men and women in all of the relevant professions uh, either doing the research or supporting that research, which points to uh, some very uh, deceptive operations going on over the last 20 years. And, and from there, I don't know, you know where you can go except to, um, again, try to get at the media and get them to change their tune. But mm-hmm. that's a... Well, well that, op- that leads us... To, to, to you know the Ron Unz uh, strategy he laid out a few years ago in a pretty good article I thought suggested. I like the Unz approach, by the way, I like his approach. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, he's he's obviously a pretty sharp guy, and his strategic article suggested making the media the enemy or, or clarifying, you know, what's at stake here by understanding that if we want to make progress on all of these kinds of issues that are misconstrued in the media, what yeah. we really should be doing is banding together with everybody who's being misconstrued in the media, and we all go to war against the media and utterly yeah. destroy their credibility. And to some extent, I think that has happened. You know, Trump was elected, I think, precisely because the media couldn't pummel him into submission. And, you know, you can be you can take the conspiratorial view of things and say, well, maybe the media beat the crap out of Trump knowing that they did it in such a way that it would give him trillions of dollars in free publicity and help him. But on the other hand, maybe the media thought that if they pummeled him uh, so ruthlessly that that would destroy him in the same way they had pummeled Gary Hart and destroyed him. Whenever the media decided to pummel a presidential candidate in the past, it destroyed them just overnight. And yes. they pummeled Trump, they pummeled Trump, they pummeled Trump. And he was like, uh, I think there's a quote from one of these mainstream media people. He, he was like the, you know, the monster that won't die. They couldn't yep. kill him. And, and, right. and why is that? It's because nobody believes the media anymore. So we are making progress in that sense. If yeah, you take this Ron perspective. That's a very interesting point. And I, I want to thank you for bringing that up. I, one of the reasons that Trump actually won that initial landslide of his was, I think because he had promised, don't forget that at one point someone estimated, someone in the media itself estimated that up to half the people in the, in the North America um, sort of had doubts about 9-11, you know, whether it was a, the way the media described it. And if there were a lot of people who didn't believe that, never mind half, let's just say 20 percent, 30 percent, that fraction added to the people who would naturally vote for Trump as, as good, you know, die-of-the-world Republicans, would have um, said, oh, well, he's promised us to reinvestigate 9-11. Let's, I'll, I'll, I normally I vote Democrat, but I'm going to swing my vote to Trump. He sounds very promising. You know what I mean? He did make Absolutely. that Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, Trump said a bunch of things that got 9-11 truthers, even including me to some extent, kind of excited. But then he was such a disappointment when he did nothing yeah. about 9-11. He continued to blame Muslims even worse than the other people did. Uh, <laughs> and he, he sealed the, you know, he, he promised to yeah. unseal the JFK records and then sealed them at the last minute, saying that they would it would harm national security to release these uh, CIA and NSA, uh, FBI, oh. JFK records. So yeah, And then Trump is- went... Uh, he went all out on war on Iran, which is the whole point of the 9-11 purpose was to get Iran. Uh, yeah. Of course, they're they're working for the Zionists. So Tr- Trump was the biggest Zionist stooge in the history of the presidency. So he, he well, was a terrible disappointment. Yeah, well, domestically, he was he had one set of policies and uh, in foreign policy, it was quite different. Uh, I noticed. Um, but in any event, my son uh, almost immediately called Trump a rodeo clown, which I thought was sort of uh, applicable. Uh, in that uh, perhaps he uh, had drawn these people in in order to win that majority and then spent the rest of his time protecting the matador from the bull, which is the great unwashed masses. Um, Who knows? But I thought that was kind of a cute way of thinking of it. Yeah, that's that was my impression, too. And if you look at the overall swing in public opinion that's been engineered since the 9-11 truth movement started taking off, in the mid aughts and kind of peaked around 2006 ish, 2007, maybe up into 2008. Uh, If if we kind of look at that sweep of, of the way public opinion has gone, 
the yes. biggest surge in 9-11 truth was more towards the left because we blamed Bush and Cheney and the neocons. And so naturally yes. that attracted people on the left. We were filling, you know, thousand foot, a thousand seat movie houses in the Twin Cities with 9-11 truth films. Uh, and they were all Democrats. And, and so we were preaching to these Democrats who all knew that Cheney had killed Paul Wellstone to go into Iraq and, and so on. And then Obama was basically coronated to put the left back to sleep. And then along yeah. came Trump after Obama to channel the disaffection with the establishment towards Trumpism. The result yeah. is today we have the disaffection uh, with the establishment still leans toward this kind of Trumpist mentality. And the left yeah. has not just been put to sleep. They've been turned into zombies um, and they're maybe injected with uh, with zombie potion for all we know. Uh, and, and so if the deep state is the folks who sort of manage things on behalf of the oligarchs who dominate money and money creation and run yeah. this Western empire, I, I think that the Western empire wants to keep expanding it is threatened by China's public banking model. It certainly, it, it also is threatened by the way that China, with its economic growth and its social engineering, has been able to get very strong public support for the Chinese government's policies. Uh, and the West is doesn't have, you know, nobody believes the powers that be in the West anymore. So they want to borrow Chinese techniques to try to herd uh, people in the West back onto the plantation and to get them to be able to march off like lemmings to war with China if necessary. And yeah. they've sort of, they've, they've unfortunately, I think they've done pretty well to neutralize the left because the left is usually the source of anti-war movements. And yeah. now, yeah, dissidence is equated with a populist and frankly, sometimes poorly informed, not very intellectual uh, right. And those yeah. people... I'm not sure they're really that much of a threat to war plans. Like when, when the elite decides it's time to, to really march off to war, a lot yeah. of those people on the right are going to beat their chests and wave the flag and sort of, you know, and, and follow what Trump says. So yeah. I, I, I think, you know, we've we've certainly spread a lot of subversive ideas around and a lot of subversive truths. But yeah. I think they've they've the controllers of the empire have managed to kind of keep things under control from their perspective. But right. maybe something will, will change it. Maybe, maybe along, you know, some black swan will come along and uh, and shake the foundations of the mind control right. program. But I don't know what that would be. Yeah, um, I'm tempted to jump ahead to the idea of a new religion uh, slowly being formulated uh, within the Middle East, according to a friend of mine from Egypt, uh, based on all three monotheistic religions, and then thinking about a passage from the Quran about the Dajjal, the beast, the uh, false prophet who shows up during the uh, end times to lead mankind into a fake religion, and then of course he gets um, dealt with, uh, you know, summarily. Uh, at some point, and uh, things kind of wrap up as far as the creation is concerned. Uh, that, whether we're in those times or not, I don't know, but uh, I must say that uh, I'm persuaded that we're certainly sort of easing into them. In any event, uh, I'm not sure where I was going with this, except that uh, I did jump ahead there, and I want to go back for a moment just to what you said earlier about 
the people being put to sleep, the Democrats being put to sleep. And I think a little voice in my head said, oh, is that why they call them woke? <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's uh, like dream, dream symbolism. In, you know, dream symbolism, sometimes things are the exact opposite of, you know, what the what the surface meaning is. And so That's the well, woke, one, yeah, the yeah, woke people can, are fast asleep. One consistent tool used by the uh, opposition is that they'll almost always label a thing with the opposite of what it really is. And people sort of fall into that trap. And so as soon as they commit in their belief systems to that interpretation, it's very hard to get them off. I mean, Mark Twain said it best, you know, when he said, uh, oh, it's uh, much easier to fool people than it is to tell them they've been fooled. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. And that's kind of what stands in our way, really, in, in this whole you know effort considered as a, as one gigantic effort on our part to get things moving. We did a fly, we, we did a, a mail out at one point in uh, our organization called Physics 911, uh, where um, we sent out um, something like 200 or 300 um, um, mail packages, each containing a. a a DVD, uh, which uh, informed them about, you know, the, the basic uh, conclusions that we had arrived at. And this time went to over 300 media. It was an experiment. Uh, types, reporters, uh, people in the media of one capacity or another. Uh, we did not get a single reply or acknowledgement from any of them. And that was... Uh, uh, an experience which showed me that there was a firewall, that what I had been calling a firewall was quite real, and that you simply cannot p- penetrate the media through its operatives, through its reporters, through its station managers, through its senior editors, whatever. It's just there's something blocking it. Maybe the whole mailing operation, this was snail mail, was they were all just snatched out of post offices and never arrived. You see what I mean? Yeah. Well, it also could be that that snail mail is largely disregarded these days. I know the people, they say that when you're a charity and you're trying to raise money through snail mail, you do really well to get something like a 1% response rate or something. And so and you you and I actually did that mail campaign as well, where we uh, mailed out these uh, newsletters. Uh, to yes, maybe, a, I think we we ended up sending it to over a thousand mosques in North America. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And likewise, we got basically zero response. Apparently, nobody right. in these mosque hierarchies wanted to be uh, getting involved in something that looked scary. Of course, they they're all terrorized by FBI infiltrators and things like that. They're they're so afraid of their own shadows that it's been very very yeah, hard we- to get Muslims on board. We had some of the Messias come and talk at the local mosque and to sort of tell them that they should all be on the lookout for people who are uh, spouting terrorist ideology. You know what I mean? Locally. And right. that's, but it also what scared them was that a lot of our uh, Muslims here, in spite of a large number of new Muslims coming in from the uh, original population, if I can call it that, um, people from the Middle East, that I have observed in traveling around the Middle East is that they tend to be very, very socially cohesive. So if there's something they're supposed to believe, they will generally believe it because that keeps them all together. 
And that's maybe a strategy that has evolved over the last thousand or so years. I don't know, but they tend to be socially very con- and politically very conservative. They tend to vote for the party that they think is the most powerful and most likely to win. You know, it's just because they want to be on this. They want to have the support of that political faction in their own, um, you know, spiritual life. You know, keeping their uh, a reasonably respectable position in the community. And respect is the perhaps the key word here. They want to appear respectable and. It's not respectable to question 9-11. I mean, I've had enough, you know, discussions with my fellow Muslims locally to know that many of them uh, do, uh, you know, tend to believe whatever they're told in the media, and there's no way of turning turning back. Others, of course, have, have become very active, and uh, God bless them. They're, I have several right here locally who who work along with me and who work independently anyway, uh, apart from any plans that he, that they and I might make, they have their own plans anyway, and they go on sending out emails saying, oh, brother, oh, sister, you should uh, consider this, look at this website, look at what's happening in the Yemen, you know, why is that, and so forth. Whatever uh, kind of topic that might come up. <clears throat> so. Mm-hmm. Locally, and, and then uh, the majority are probably in between, right? The, the, you know, there's there's a, a minority who are often in the leadership positions who just ex, you know accept or pretend to accept whatever the, you know the media and the leadership and the power says. And then you have, as you said, these activists who are also a minority, the truth seekers right. and the activists, the brave people. And then right. you have the big majority in the middle. I think that mostly really doubts the official story of 9/11, or or even knows it's a lie. I think the polls have shown two thirds of American Muslims basically understand 9/11 to be a, a false flag, but they're they don't really see how they can do anything about it, and so they keep their mouth shut. Right. Not to mention the uh, great majority of British Muslims uh, have uh, suspicions about. You've seen that website probably. Yes. Um, you know, have their uh, doubts about 9-11, so that's not too surprising. Um, I'm just trying to think what I was about to say. Um, oh well, there, I think the, yeah. the snail mail is not really the, the best technique unless you can come up with something really uh, brilliant that's going to, uh, you know, <laughs> it's going to ch- radically change the nature of that medium. Um, well, if, if I'm going to use snail mail for anything, it's going to be for... Um, messages that are unlikely to be read. Let me just tell you right now, from a computer point of view, uh, every email that anyone sends out anywhere in the world, uh, the, the software is easy to write, dead easy to write, that every message gets doubled. One copy goes to the uh, intended recipient. The other copy goes straight to this huge data bank at NSA in Maryland. Mm-hmm. And you mean course, I, I don't have to CC the NSA anymore? I mean, it just automatically CCs them. Uh, yeah, no, it doesn't CC them. It, it sends them a direct copy of the exact document received by the recipient. There's no CC involved. It didn't wouldn't happen. Yeah, I, I was kind of joking, but yeah, I, I get it. That's, and I, I heard oh, yeah. about that. Yeah. Oh, yes. Dark humor, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's 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 true. I mean, and right now we're we're talking, I suppose, to the NSA as well as to our, our more honest listeners. <laughs> well, I have a fun with a, a lady friend, and uh, sometimes we get have this hilarious chat together, and uh, we start performing for the uh, 
for the all the uh, thousand or so new recruits who have been assigned to listen in on our conversations. So we talk about them and how, you know, then he, she and I have an argument and then we wonder, you know, which of them agree with her and which of them agree with me. And then we both try to get them to agree with our particular point of view. And it gets extraordinarily funny. And if anyone is listening in, uh, I think they would find it quite entertaining, if if not dismaying. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, listening, sure. Uh, but listening, the phone is, is something else. What happens there, I think, the easiest way to engineer that is to simply uh, you scan each, every phone conversation that occurs is scanned uh, into a sound file. And the sound file is, is then converted into, um, into words. Uh, most of the words that are spoken will end up as in a printed form. And then that file is scanned for keywords like terrorism, um, swear words, uh, anything that indicates uh, a state of mind that is disturbed or upset about something, uh, not to mention various names of things like political figures or, you know, name like Rothschild, who knows. Um, those go to uh, a filter center, would go to a filter center where those, those emails, now down to about 10,000, are read by more expert people who quickly discard 99% of them and then send what remains on to a, to a higher level filter center, uh, which um, actually picks up that and then sends, sends the results, reports off to operatives who go and do something about some developing situation, which these uh, phone conversations have revealed. I, mean, I would imagine it would be a very small percentage of the conversations that would actually be uh, actionable. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one in a million or something, a uh, hundred million. In any event, um, that's the only way to really do it sensibly. And I believe that's the way, in fact, that's the, the overall structure is something that is routine in our spy agencies, such as they are you know, in terms of uh, boiling down information into uh, an essence which can be acted on. So so this is, of course, totally in violation of the uh, U.S. Bill of Rights and uh, human international human rights law. Uh, how, how have we let ourselves be so surveilled, and how much worse is it going to get if they push through these various COVID bills, like the bill that is being voted on in Switzerland, that will allow for contact tracing, and so people will have to carry these certificates around on their phones everywhere they go to get into the store to buy food. They'll have to flash their digital passport. Uh, it does seem like uh, freedom and privacy are increasingly being marginalized and relegated to the past. Yes, and I think that's what I actually come to think of it has probably motivated a lot of the uh, people who went into those large demonstrations in Europe and locally, not to mention Toronto, just uh, down the road. Uh, to to join in, they're alarmed without knowing anything about you know the deep state or having been in touch with that kind of point of view. Um, they are concerned and, and upset about it. Personally, uh, I'm an unvaccinated person, and I have no intention of getting vaccinated at the moment. Anyway, uh, a gun could at some point be held to my head and I would feel necessary to get vaccinated. For my example, my my son right now in California is kind of uh, quite ill and 
if I have to go and, and I might have to go and see him, in which case I probably will get myself vaccinated just to be able to get on a plane. But at the same time, um, do you have to, do you have to be vaccinated to get on a plane? Not no, the last I to, heard. No, no, you have to have your, both of your shots to be admitted on board the aircraft. Really? Like, I, th- I thought it was, uh, ju- I didn't think they were doing that yet. I know I, when I flew to San Francisco in September, there was no provision whatsoever for ascertaining people's vaccination status. Um, all, all there was was, in the fact, there wasn't even testing. But I guess international travel may be different. Well, you have to have, I'm told, you have to have a certificate. So, um, you know, that you've got both vaccinations, not to mention this insane booster shot. Um, but uh, so what I'm doing, my strategy is just hold on, hold on as long as I can just to see what happens, to experience it from a personal point of view, certainly inculcates the information into my conscious mind in a way that if I were vaxxed, it wouldn't happen. I experience these things personally, everything, every time they make some threat to the unvaccinated, um, you know, including the possibility of being sent off to some camp for a re-education, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is so much. This is really getting like the Iron Curtain, you know. Um, uh, Doctor Fauci's fun camp. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a holiday camp. Arbeit macht frei. All right, Vax shall set you free. Oh boy. Um, yes, that see, work. Yeah. You'll be free. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. The these kinds of threats do sort of loom on the horizon for me personally, but. My strategy is just to stick with my knitting and stay unvaccinated and have the kind of interactions that occur daily, whether it's with my housekeeper or with uh, a friend whom I, you know, didn't realize had different views or whatever, um, or people who criticize me, including my own brother, for, uh, you know, being so nasty as to doubt that uh, COVID-19 wasn't a real, uh, you know, problem. Uh, so that's from a personal point of view, of course. And and so your uh, choice of not being vaccinated and your general opposition to the policy is based on do you do you see this as um, a depopulate a potential depopulation effort or something at that level, or is it more that you you think that the benefits and uh, possible harms of the vaccines uh, don't look like all that appealing is is, is there some of, combination of both a bit of both actually i mean personally if i have taken a stand that uh the covid 19 virus has not been shown to actually exist that the pcr test cannot distinguish one flu from another as ascertained by the person who invented the test um so they can't possibly know if, based on PCR testing, you can't know if you're dealing with a variant or the COVID-19 or even just seasonal flu. You cannot distinguish between them. This sort of well, wait, wait a minute. I, I I didn't think that was true. I, th- I thought that so, yeah, there there may there are some tests that can't and others that can uh, with the PCR tests. Um, well, the PCR test was fingered originally as as being unable fingered by the expert, whom the person that I took to be an expert, as being unable to distinguish one flu from another. It just de- identified the kind of proteins that get developed 
when a virus of any kind becomes active in your in your system. And what it does is it, it looks for these proteins, and you put the test through more and more cycles, and more and more of these proteins show up. And if you pass a threshold, you can say, oh, this person's got COVID-19. You know, uh, here's another case, you know. I wrote a letter to the editor locally. I just said, uh, you know, these cases are surely, since they're asymptomatic, simply people who have um, an immunity developed by contact with a a flu virus, or maybe you want to call it COVID-19, go ahead, call it COVID-19. With the COVID-19 virus, developed an immune reaction, and that's what's showing up with the PCR test. Don't call them new cases. They're not new at all. You see, that's where the lie comes in, that, in my opinion, the media is telling everybody. So on that basis, uh, at least on the basis of, of opposing a lie, uh, deciding not to fall into line with the, uh, what the media are telling you to do becomes a moral issue, and that's one peg in my tent. And the other peg comes from uh, the observation that these things could actually be doing people harm. Do you think those stories about unvac- or vaccinated people in hospitals, uh, think they're true? Or what's your take on that? Well, uh, you know, there are two issues here. One is that First, I, I don't really fully agree with the perspective you just expressed because I've I had COVID. I didn't get tested because I agree that the the tests uh, are not uh, highly accurate by any means, and I I pretty much knew I had it. I didn't need to get tested. Um, and I have a good friend, uh, Dr. Eric Beef, who's been treating people with COVID in Brussels, Belgium, and he's he's at, they're actually trying to take away his license, but he's seen a lot of people with bad COVID. Uh, the x-ray all it looks like, you know, when you, you have a really bad in your lungs, it the x-ray makes it look like you have ground glass in your lungs. And yes. uh, my false flag weekly news co-host, John Chuck, did apparently die of COVID that just wiped out his lungs. They, you know, he's going to need a lung transplant and then he was dead. Uh, so this there is this uh, weird super flu called COVID that really is the the genome they say it is. And it really does do the damage they say it does to, you know, it yeah. kills point, you know, whatever, 0.5% uh, of, of its of the people who get it overall. I think that's all true. And uh, as far as the vaccines being the right response, I really strongly doubt that because, yes, I agree. I, I think I'm seeing all sorts of convincing uh, evidence of red flags showing um, circulatory issues around these vaccines probably yes. spike protein related. And then yes. these vaccines do not do a, a terribly good job stopping transmission. In fact, statistically, right. the places with heavy vaccination rates are not doing any better than the ones without them. So yeah, uh, I saw that. That's interesting. Right. Right. And, and so that overall, if you follow closely the medical details of this, uh, yeah. you would be very skeptical, skeptical about getting vaccinated, perhaps unless you were like really old and, you know, with comorbidities, in which case maybe it's worth a shot. But they're overselling it by by miles, it seems to me. Oh, yeah. Um, one really big problem is that nobody has the genome for this virus, which is very weird. Well, they, they claim they published the genome. You know, maybe I should bring you on to talk with Meryl Mass about this because she's she's kind of one of my go-to experts. But we hit, I hear the bumper music in the background, so we're done for the evening. Uh, I'm sorry, because it was been a great conversation. Thank you. Uh, you do. It was great talking.
Are we, uh, are we, uh, calling yeah, it? We're signing off. <laughs> this is 50 Odd Radio. Well, John. <laughs>